Welcome to Immersed in Theology. This is the podcast where graduate students talk theology, church, and life. Please enjoy the conversation. Okay, welcome to the Immersed in Theology podcast. I'll be your host today. My name is Ben, and I'm here with Andrew. Hello. And with Danny. Hi. And we are going to be discussing, having a really interesting discussion, on the lost world of Adam and Eve, Genesis 2 and 3, the human origin debate by John Walton. Um, so I thought I would kick it off um, just by having an overview. Uh, Danny, maybe you can provide us with just an overview of the book, what John was talking about, and maybe a couple of the key ideas, key points uh, that he would want you to take away from this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, Lost World of Adam and Eve by John Walton. So essentially, uh, John Walton, what he's doing is he comes up with 21 propositions. And in these 21 propositions, what he's trying to do, and the subtitle to the book is Genesis 2 to 3 and the Human Origins Debate. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to focus on um, what I believe uh, Genesis 1 to 3 would be doing and how that ties to the origins of humanity because oftentimes um, you have extremes on both sides where um, either people are viewing Genesis through this lens where it's purely scientific and it's more of like a literalistic kind of reading and then you have the other extreme of um, like hardcore science where you just throw everything essential out and like don't even really believe in what the Bible is saying so what John Walton is trying to do is he's trying to immerse us into the ancient world and to try and help us understand um, what the human authors would have been communicating through Genesis 1 to 3. So essentially, um, his big thing is this, is that um, there's a lens that we read the Bible through, right? There's genres to the Bible, and with Genesis 1 to 3 in particular, um, the lens that you read it through is going to affect what you believe about the origins of humanity. Um, it's going to believe what you believe about Adam and Eve as real people, or um, whether or not that's even a thing. So essentially, he's just trying to help us understand that hey, this is probably what the context of Genesis 1 to 3 is. Um, here's, here are some of the helpful things that I've discovered in my research of ancient literature. So essentially, that's what he's doing for us. Cool. Thanks, Danny. And did you enjoy the book? You found it challenging? Or what yeah. were your takeaways? You know what? Honestly, I wish I would have read this book sooner. Um, yeah, like, I mean, for myself, like, I've always been very... Um, critical of people who don't agree with what I have agreed when it comes to understanding the creation account. So just reading someone like Walton just gave me some good perspective, just solidified the, some things I already believed and challenged me and pushed back into other things that I didn't hold to before. So right. yeah, one of the best reads in this program for sure. Awesome. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I actually, to be honest, haven't given that much time into figuring out what I believe concretely uh, on creation. So this was the first book that I've read that is only on creation and then on Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. So I found it to be fascinating. And I've heard, I've obviously had many conversations with people about the various topics, but I was never well versed. And reading this gave me a lot of insight, helped me look at it differently. It presented uh, arguments that I'd never thought of before right. that I found to be very interesting and so it definitely changed the way I thought I don't agree with everything he said but it it opened my eyes to Genesis and maybe realize there's a lot more that's going on underneath the hood mm-hmm. than I think that we take at just a face value while also recognizing that the text is biblical it has authority and we also need to um, revere that yeah, I, I totally agree with you guys. For me, uh, similar thing where um, it just br- brought to light things I had not considered about the Genesis right. Genesis text. And while I don't think I agree with everything that he wrote in his book, I also don't think that that was the intention of his book. I think mm-hmm. his the intention of his book was just to say, to help us question some things that we are just holding as truths right. and actually say, well, hang on, no, that's actually you're kind of doing uh, interpretational backflips to actually take that from the text. 
Um, so I really appreciated it, and yeah, it was a great read for me. So before we go into and start discussing each of the propositions, uh, we're not going to discuss all the propositions. We're going to discuss the ones that really stood out to us and really kind of were foundational to the book and also to our understanding of Genesis. Um, before we go into that, I thought it would be a great idea to um, go around and just provide us in like five, like two minutes or less, two to five minutes, um, just what, before you read this book, your position on Genesis was. Um, and then we'll we'll dive into the propositions that John brings up in the book. So, Danny, you want to kick us off with that? Mm -hmm. So, um, just so you guys are aware, so my background was um, the church that I grew up in, and um, even just the way I was raised. Like, I was raised very heavily on um, things like Creation Ministries International and Answers in Genesis by Ken Ham. So, um, that was kind of the lens that I had growing up reading Genesis through, and. Um, just so you guys were like, I, I am not in any way a scientist whatsoever. Um, I, I nerd out about the Bible, but when it comes to science, I'm like, ah, like what that person says makes sense. So I guess they're right or whatever. So what happened was, um, even in the past, I don't know, two or three years, um, just being in Bible college just challenged me a little bit and realizing that, um, the, the literal, um, God creates the world in six days and rests on the seventh. Like, that's not the only view that is out there. So because of that, I've had to wrestle through, th through some things. And although I've been pretty neutral to, um, you know, what my position was in the whole creation story, there are a couple things that I've always thought were essential. So for me, um, before reading this book, um, I thought that it was still essential that Adam and Eve had to be real people. Um, for some reason, that was just always in the back of my mind because um, I didn't think it would make sense for, um, you know, Paul's theology on like sin and these kinds of things to make sense. So I had to believe they were real people. Um, I had to believe um, that uh, there were aspects of the creation account that were literal. For example, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, may maybe like when they have like their, you know, their two sons, like, that kind of stuff, I'm like, yeah, that, that sounds more like a, like a real story. But anyhow, that's just kind of where I'm coming from, where I think there were aspects of it that had to be literal in order for the rest of the Bible to make sense. But I was pretty neutral, to be honest. Thanks, Danny. Andrew? Yeah, um, as I said before, I, I, I think I, I resonate with Danny in that I, I've always kind of held a neutral standing when people would come up to me and they'd say, uh, are you young earth or, or old earth? Um, I would pick honestly I don't know but I've always read Genesis literally so I guess I would have been adhering to a young earth um, philosophy uh, and like that's that's what I thought that the earth was created in six days and God rested on the seventh and that was within 24 hour um, periods however there is a lot of science that would challenge that view um, in terms of how old the earth is so you're kind of coming you know head to head with that and so I've definitely been thinking over the past couple years all right what do I actually believe because this is a real thing in terms of the science and so what are the other options and this is why the book I, I found to be quite timely and just had me thinking about different uh, viewpoints great yeah, for me, um, kind of a similar story. Born, raised in a Christian home, uh, was homeschooled for all of my, uh, you know, uh, from pretty much grade one all the way to high through through high school, um, and so in that, most of my uh, science education and background was kind of similar to you, Danny, where it was a lot of. Uh, uh, like creation ministries, it all begins with Genesis, those kind of courses. So I've always taken a more literal interpretation of the Genesis account. Um, would be a, a literal six-day creationist, uh, you know. Um, so yeah, this, this book uh, was great for me because it, it helped challenge some of those ideas um, and then also when I went to college for the first time I studied science for the first uh, year and um, in that I got a lot of exposure to the evolutionary background of science um, so I feel like I have a decent not a great but a decent understanding of kind of the both camps 
Um, and yeah. Um, cool. Interesting. Very, very <laughs> interesting. So yeah, what we'll do is uh, let's dig into proposition one of uh, John's, John's proposition. So the proposition is Genesis is an ancient document. Um, so when we're looking at that, um, first let's start with a quote. Um, Danny, do you want to just read us this quote here? Sure. So this is what it says. Biblical authority is tied inseparably to the author's intention. God vested his authority in a human author, so we must consider what the human author intended to communicate if we want to understand God's message. Two voices speak, but the human author is our doorway into the room of God's meaning and message. That means that when we read Genesis, we are reading an ancient document and should begin by using only the assumption that would be appropriate for the ancient world. Right. So, um, do you agree with John's idea that uh, this is more an imagery focus, that um, we have to be interpreting things from both the author's perspective, we have to consider how the text was written um, when we're looking at the Genesis story? Yeah, um, yeah, so here's, so kind of like hermeneutics, sorry, not hermeneutics, yeah, uh, 101. Um, here's the thing about when we're reading Genesis and John specifically is we have to keep in mind that the way God works is and I would just go based off of like um, 2 Timothy 3 16 to 17 all scripture is inspired by God um, and you get this idea that God breathes out and the way that this works in real time is that God when he was um, inspiring people to write is he was inspiring them to write through the way that they would have understood um, whether it be science or whether it be just the way the world works he's working through what they would have understood so because of that we have to keep in mind that when we're reading um, a text like Genesis um, if the author would have understood things to be a certain way or if he was communicating in a way that made sense to the ancient world then we have to keep that in mind so we actually have to take additional steps to understand the context of what the author would have been saying. So I, I think I think sometimes we get hung up on this because um, we live, like when we read something, um, like for example, when we're reading the news or, or someone tells us a story, we assume that they're telling us exactly the way things happen and they're not talking in these um, you know, symbolic terms. But when we're reading a text like Genesis, we have to keep in mind that um, perhaps in the ancient world, um, there would have been a lot more of um, symbolism happening. And because of that, that does affect the way that you read Genesis. So yes, I would agree. Um, maybe, I don't know if to the same extent that John Walton would say that this is happening, but I would definitely agree that there's something going on with the Genesis text where um, it's we shouldn't just read it as like, oh yeah, that happened and therefore that's the signs of it. Right. Yeah. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I was just reminded of, so I've been reading these law books, these uh, law thrillers, they're novels by an author, and um, they're, they're super entertaining, but they were written about 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And so he would, he would talk about some of the money that these lawyers were making, and he'd be like, okay, yeah, they're making $300 an hour. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of money. But then I got to think, okay, this is 30 years ago. So how much would $300 be then if it was compared to today? Right. Which would actually be a lot more than $300. Right. And so when I, when I think about it like that, then I think, okay, how would a text that was written thousands of years ago mm. mean, what would that mean to me today? Because I think if, if the difference with the money 30 years ago, think about what is being written thousands of years ago, think about that difference, it'd be astronomical. And so I have to look at it through a filter and be like, all right, what are they actually saying? And that's what I liked about what John is talking about is he's saying, okay, you gotta, you gotta look through this filter that they're writing to um, this ancient civilization. And what does that mean to them? And so one of the points that he really makes and that he urges us to look at Genesis 
is that we don't look at the Genesis account, um, the first few chapters, as mythology, but you look at it imagistically. And so he poses this, it's imagistic. It's like visual storytelling or poetry. Um, it's not actual poetry, but there's this visual aspect to it. And so he actually, he has an um, analogy here. He talks about Vincent van Gogh, who uh, painted the starry night, mm -hmm. this painting and there's stars in the sky. And when we look at that, we would never draw scientific um, theories or uh, facts from that painting. But we wouldn't necessarily say, okay, this is a complete farce. Like what he is actually painting in this, in this picture is not real. We wouldn't yeah. be saying that. And so he says that um, imagistic history, like that preserved in Genesis, is to history as Vincent van Gogh's The Starry Night is to a Hubble photograph, right. like of the Hubble telescope. Yeah. So I think it's a great way to look at it. And that kind of gives a good backdrop on just all the different um, propositions that he poses. Yeah, for, for me, um, just listening to you say that, Andrew, that was a, a fantastic summary. But um, when thinking back to the classic, like, young Earth versus old Earth, and I don't want to discuss that right now. We will get to that later on in the podcast. But that idea being brought up and, and learning kind of about those, those worlds, it's interesting that I don't think either side... Um, stopped and tried to put their initial uh, filter and bias aside and just right. say, okay, what is the text actually saying? And I really think John did a great job in this book of actually doing that mm -hmm. and just saying, okay, no, like we'll do our best to understand what, like who wrote the book, the, who the author was and who he was writing to. And, and we'll actually let the text speak for itself. So that for me was interesting because, you know, like uh, six day creation is very literal interpretation of the text. And it's like you were saying with the, the Van Gogh painting, it's like taking a literal interpretation from that, right. from that painting. So, yeah, um, this ties actually really well into another quote that I wanted to read off for you guys. So God's intention is not to teach science or to reveal science. He does not reveal, sorry, he does reveal his work in the world, but it doesn't reveal how the world works. Mm -hmm. So when we're taking a quote like that, that's a pretty um, bold statement. It's a pretty big statement. So how do you guys feel about that? And um, in that discussion, also, I want to touch on the idea of, is there an advantage to separating science from the Bible right. um, and actually trying to draw those lines? That's kind of what he's doing where he's saying, you know, God's intention isn't to teach or to reveal science. That's not what his goal is. His goal um, is to reveal his work in the world, um, not to figure out how the world works. So do you think there is an advantage to trying to separate those things? How do you feel about that statement? Is it too bold? Is it too strong? Um, Andrew, mm -hmm. do you want to take first step? Yeah, I think what, so John, he says, I'm just going to quote something. He says, he, he just gave a, a point about, um, what he believes about the book of Genesis. And then he says, this has the advantage of separating scientific elements from exegetical theological elements with the result that conflict between claims of science and the claims of scripture is minimized without compromise. And so I, when I read that something like an alarm bell kind of went off, um, I, I like what he is, he's saying. I don't agree with everything, but to me, I just had to ask, you know, is this somewhat of a scapegoat? Is the pressure from the scientific community about um, things they're finding out, is that pressure getting to theologians and us as a church? And then are we saying, okay, we have to figure out a new way to look at scripture or a new way to look at the creation account because the science isn't adding up. And so then when he totally separates looking at science and then the Genesis story. Um, I, I find it challenging to fully do that. I like it because I feel like it's actually easier, but I don't know if that's necessarily the right thing. And so I was talking to uh, one of the lead pastors here, Cliff, and he is absolutely not of the opinion that we should be separating science and scripture. He thinks that 
scripture is going to fully back up the science. And honestly, that's what I've been taught my whole life. And so it does kind of, I don't know, grind my gears, I guess yeah. you could say, and yeah. slightly. Um, I, I love, I, I like the idea that we can just separate them both. But at the same time, that almost, I feel like then takes away from the authority of scripture. Shouldn't, shouldn't scripture be able to encompass science? And shouldn't the discoveries we find in science back up what we find in the scriptural accounts of creation? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I wrestle with. I don't know what you think, mm-hmm. Danny. Yeah, I, I would say um, the, way, the way he words it is interesting. He's saying that God's intention is not to teach it or to reveal, reveal it at all. Like, that's pretty much what he's saying. And I think, I think perhaps John Walton could have either reworded his statement or he could have expanded on that. Because here's where I do agree with him. Where I do agree with him is that um, Genesis and Scripture is not ultimately trying to reveal science. That being said, it's pretty bold to say that it's not revealing any science whatsoever. Mm. So here's what I think. I think, I think Walton is trying, like he's in a good way reacting to perhaps people that are saying, no, scripture is like, it's a scientific thing when you read it. Like the way it's read, it's the way it's happened. Where I think John Walton is healthily reacting to that and saying, no, you can't ultimately believe that that's what God is trying to do. But I do think um, Walton perhaps could have expanded more on this. And I would just say that I don't think you have to throw out the fact that there are scientific aspects or scientific truth encompassed in scripture. So that's where I would kind of land is, um, I I don't think you have to separate them. I do think you have to clarify the lens that you're reading scripture through. That's what I would say. Yeah, Uh, that's good. Yeah, I I don't disagree. Um, I think there is, I would. I think I would put it this way. I think there is a, a an advantage um, when you are like there's a evangelical advantage or like evangelistically there's an advantage to separating science from the Bible because right. it's actually a really common hang right. up for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's like if I'm going to become a Christian, I've got to choose to dispel science completely, yeah. um, and so separating that. There is that advantage where it's like, no, actually, you don't. Mm-hmm. You can continue to believe in evolution and still be a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and while that's not what I believe, that is still valid. Like the requirement of salvation is not that you believe in the Genesis account, uh, you know, a literal. Yeah. Six yeah. No, Genesis that's a great account. point. Yeah. So I think there is an advantage to it. Yeah. That is. said, yeah. I think, like you brought up a great point with the scapegoat, I think it can be a little bit of that where we are saying, like, um, you know, there's no point in trying to actually investigate creation science or like dig into that uh, because it's like oh you know science whatever science says is fine and we'll, we can take that and the bible can stand on its own and they exist in these two different realms and i don't think that's what we want but i think there is a, a, a i think there is a, a positive idea to just saying you know what science and the bible can stand separately but they should stand together mm-hmm. but they can stand uh separately and still be valid. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing, um, and I think we'll discuss this a little later on as well, is that I think our culture, just how um, John brings up in this first proposition, just to try to understand the culture of that time. Um, our culture now idolizes science, and science is right. like this be all end all, it's the final say on every discussion. It's like, no, science has proven it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have taken science and elevate it to a a position it was never designed or intended to be in, um, which is something that is important for, I think, all of us to remember when we are discussing with any non-believers or even believers who hold science to different standards that they don't, we're not always holding it to the right standard. Um, We're putting it like the science is informing our worldview instead of our worldview informing our science, um, which is a place where science was never really designed to be. So, yeah. Yeah, and even just to add on that, like, the, like the whole point of science is like, um, like you're observing what, like what what can be known, what you can see, and what it what it's not. What what we have to understand that science is cannot do is it cannot explain what we 
what we cannot observe or know. Like for example, like um, you know where everything came from. Like we can only observe. Okay, this is what we have now. Um, like we might have this evidence and whatever that leads us to believe that based on this method of interpreting, you know, the evidence that this is how old the Earth is or blah blah blah. But the whole point is that it's an observation and it's observing something natural. Mm. But the the thing with the creation account, it's clearly a supernatural account of how everything mm -hmm. came into existence. And I actually want to touch on that because um, we live in a different world view than um, like the ancient world. So um, John Walton was actually mentioning this and he's right that people in the ancient world were more inclined to see the world's operations in terms of divine cause. And we see this in the Genesis account where um, it, it like we get this from the very beginning, like God speaks and it happens just like that. And like, that's the way that um, people understood things to happen back then. It's, it was the gods that caused everything to happen. It's the gods that caused, um, whether it be the flood or whatever, whether it be the harvest or whatever, like people attributed something to a divine cause. Whereas today we have the opposite lens and problem where we don't, um, at least in Western civilization, we don't see things in terms of divine cause. And we believe that when things do happen, that it happens over a long period of time. Because again, we're observing what we can see that's happening. So mm -hmm. that's important to understand when we're even jumping into Genesis is that um, unlike um, the ancient world of divine cause, we're living in a world where um, we tend to lean towards, yeah, like this, this is the way it is just because it is and it's been that way forever. Right. So. Um, any other closing thoughts on Proposition 1? Yeah, I think, I think um, we, we are talking a lot about the separation of science, the Genesis story, what, what does that mean? But um, going back to how he is pitching things imagistically and, and saying that Genesis, it's more of a, a visual storytelling account, I think that is very important. And so even even recognize that in myself, just be like, okay, this makes so much sense. That makes so much sense that it is, it's it's not literal word, word by word. There's a lot of imagery going on. Yeah. And so I need to remind myself that when I when I do when I do think then, okay, now I gotta take a look at this with science. Um, if if it is being told in this fashion, then yeah, it makes sense. There is gonna be that separation. Yeah. So I th just the a reminder, I guess, for myself. Yeah, no, it's a great reminder for all of us. Mm -hmm. um, a great way to conclude that opening point. Uh, so now we'll move on to Proposition 2. So John outlines uh, Proposition 2 as in the ancient world uh, and the Old Testament, creating focuses on establishing order by assigning roles and functions. So Danny, could you just tell us quickly uh, if you could like summarize in your own words what that means? So um, a staff focusing on establishing order by assigning roles and functions. Yeah, so um, here's the thing. Um, I'll, actually, before I jump into that, um, I think this will be helpful um, in order to talk about this. So I'm going to read Genesis 1 and 2 from the ESV. Um, and this is what it says. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So notice that um, it's talking about how the earth is without form. There's no, there's no order. There's no, um, there's no somethingness to um, just the fact that like um, there's there's a world in which, and we get more into this where there is order. And it even says like um, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So um, just like kind of like a, a backdrop and. You can get this from guys like um, Tim Mackey's from the Bible Project. He talks a lot about this. But in the ancient world, um, waters or the seas or whatever, and even through biblical literature, uh, what we understand is like it represents non-order or represents chaos. So um, this proposition saying that um, in the ancient world, the Old Testament, creating focuses on establishing order by assigning roles and functions, um, we have to understand that uh, with... With the Genesis account, um, even if we don't believe that this is fully what it's doing, we have to believe that to some extent that's exactly what creation is about because that's the context in which the author sets it up in verse 2. 
that God was hovering over the chaos or the non-order. So it makes sense um, that you would read the Genesis account through that lens. That God is in the habit of establishing order and he sets things up in a way, and we'll talk more about this, where um, it just works for the benefit of not only God, but um, for the benefit of um, the entirety of creation. So when he's saying that it focuses on establishing order by assigning roles and functions, um, pretty much the idea here is, is not so much on, yeah, this is your role, your function, but rather it's actually honing in on how God is the one who establishes that order. It's God who says, okay, you go do this, or um, trees like bring forth fruit. Like The idea here is that it's God who brings us about. And that's actually something that we have the advantage of reading the story um, today is when we're talking to people, um, we can tell them, well, um, this is the worldview that um, it's God who's um, creating things out of nothing. It's God who um, makes the world exist and continue to exist as we know it. So I think that's what it's kind of trying to focus on. Yeah, um, I, I think a great quote to summarize that mm -hmm. idea is, it's God's presence that brings order and establishes sacred space. Mm -hmm. Sacred space is the center of order as God is the source of order. Therefore, when we talk about the establishment of or order, we are in effect talking about the establishment of sacred space. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I really liked in this in this uh, proposition how John like really simplifies what actually is accomplished in creation and what we're talking about. We're talking about creating order from chaos mm -hmm. essentially yeah. and um, that, that theme kind of runs through the remainder of the book like the whole idea is this you know order is good, God is order because order creates sacred space, chaos is bad. Um, and so there's that, that vein of those thought, like good and evil is mm -hmm. order and chaos. Right. Um, and that kind of runs through the rest of the theme of this book. Um, and goes into how we would view Adam and Eve and how we view a lot of other things in Genesis. Mm -hmm. So when we're discussing this, um, was this a new idea to you? Just that in the Genesis story, that there's, it's really about order and chaos, or if you boil it down, it, order and chaos is really important. Was this a new idea to you? Um, and do you agree? Andrew, yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it definitely a, a new idea for me. Um, again, I thought the whole creation account was on creation and right. material creation. And I know that's kind of bleeds into the next proposition. Yeah. Um, however, the concept of bringing about order um, from chaos and bringing function, I thought that was very interesting. And it was, and when John really dives into the the history of that civilization, um, you, you notice that that's how they were thinking about things. And so uh, he even says, um, for for Israel, creation resolves the absence of order and not the absence of material. So they they were concerned about. The absence of order and they wanted to know about that they weren't thinking about where did these things come from and the material origins so i, I thought that to be quite fascinating mm -hmm. cool. I, I think i think what was new for me like like i already had in the back of my mind this idea like of course like um, god creates order out of non-order disorder however you want to put it but what i what was new for me was actually what john walton was like he was emphasizing that like um, a lot of the creation story is centered around that. And um, I don't know if you guys remember reading this in the book, but he was saying that um, the way that the way that he would define good, the way John would define good according to the context of like order and non-order is that good is what is ordered. Right. Which is interesting because, um, and this is kind of like a side thing, but I always thought of goodness as like, yeah, perfection. Like yeah. God yeah. created like this perfect world where like everything was the way it's going to be in the new creation. Whereas John is saying that, and I, I agree with him, like God, God creates this space and he invades the space with, um, you know, his, his creation. And he sets it up in a way where um, there's a sense of order and there's a sense in which 
there still needs to be a continued order and mm-hmm. that's where you get like the idea of and we can talk more about this later but God assigning um, roles to humanity roles to Adam and Eve to actually co-rule over the created order because right. it's not just like a one-time thing where um, order is there and then it's done yeah. but there's actually a continual process to bring that order about right so that that was new for me I thought yeah that makes sense it makes sense and it actually um, gives I think humanity some more purpose and value in the creation story is that we have a part to play in this story of um, bringing order to the chaos so yeah mm-hmm. So actually, I think that kind of brings up an interesting thought. So do you think that today, in our current context, like that description still applies well? Like this chaos is bad, order is good. Like, do you see evidence of that? Like politically, um, you know, geographically, structurally, architecturally, you know, do you think that's, do you think that still rings true? I, I think I think applicationally yes and here's what I mean um, I believe that there we can see aspects of both order and chaos um, the order he, here's what I think we can see it in um, I think we can see it through um, what Jesus accomplished on the cross um, where we get this idea that God established his kingdom um, or at least initiated that establishment of it and in that sense, there is order. But what's interesting is that um, the story doesn't just end there, but throughout the entire New Testament, you get this idea um, that God is actually calling humanity, even throughout the whole Bible, like he's calling humanity to join him in his renewal of creation, in his um, recreating or reordering of what has been non-ordered or just dysfunctioning. So I think in, I think in that sense, there's order. I think the chaos that we can see, like I think people can clearly see that. Um, people can see that in um, suffering. People can see that in sickness and death and these kinds of things. And I think there's evidences for both. And I think a lot of this actually has to do with the tension of the kingdom of God. And we could probably touch more on this later, but I think there is an aspect of both, I would say. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah. I, um like in, in present day society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like do you yeah. see evidence of order being good and chaos being bad? Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a evi- evidence of it. I mean, uh, how many years, seven years ago? Like I just take a look at when the Canucks lost in game seven right. playoffs. Right. Chaos breaks loose. And yeah, it was disastrous. Yeah. Um, but interestingly enough, like there's beauty in chaos as well. And uh, like, for example, I know that... Um, uh, one of the one of the men that was serving in the, in riot squad, his father was actually working for I believe the VPD. They were never able to work side by side because they were doing totally different things. But on that night, they needed extra riot squad members, and literally side by side, father son, they were there part of riot squad. And he said it was this crazy like father son bonding moment. Like how cool is that? Beauty in the chaos. And then, and then you also have order, and then but the problem with too much order is people begin to rebel. It's like they want the chaos. So right. it's like trying to find that, that, that balance. Um, I think if you have too much of one, you start seeking out the other. And it almost goes to show it until J- Jesus returns, like we're just never going to find that perfection, that complete satisfaction. Um, however, there is a total beauty in like kingdom order. And I, I think when we see evidence of that, like it's it's beautiful when the church executes it mm-hmm. well. Like it's it's um, people feel like they belong, they feel loved, they feel a sense of purpose. And when that's firing on all cylinders, that changes cities and and nations. Yeah. And and revivals begin. So I think we won't find complete satisfaction in order until the coming of Christ but the church absolutely has this responsibility to bring in and and, and I will have to say yeah there's a difference between kingdom godly order and then worldly order it isn't just about creating laws and um, law-abiding citizens you know like actually goes to the heart and then at that point I'd be questioning so what does that look like like what yeah what is godly order right 
or what's the requirement for order that's what I've been thinking just what you guys were discussing it's like you know it's easy to drop terms like you know order so it's like okay well what does that actually look like and how would it actually be accomplished and the thing that's come to mind for me is like order is moving towards a common goal like that's a requirement to order that's mm. sorry let me rephrase that requirement of order is moving towards a common goal mm. or submitting to a common authority that re that is a requirement in order for order to exist so when we look at it in terms of like a kingdom context that is everyone aligning and submitting perfectly to the authority of our lives god mm -hmm. right and that's that perfect order and you can see that societally as well we're like ordered societies are all operating under they're submitting to uh, an authority and, and chaos is more of this concept of doing whatever you want in the moment mm. at that time so it's you are the authority yeah and so you're just deciding whatever you want to do and that's kind of the chaos and when you look at the sin of adam and eve that's essentially what it is is this idea of no i'm actually going to be my authority I'm not going to be God's authority. Yeah. And we see that order and chaos played out again. And so it's interesting. Um, I'm going through freedom session right now. And so in my freedom session group, we have, uh, you know, we discuss a lot and there's so many different um, hurts and sins and, you know, habitual sins that exist in people's life. And they can be really, really different. But one of the common things we found inside of our group may not be true for everyone, but I think there would be some truth to this is, just this idea of procrastination in an individual's life. So like not having structure in your life mm. leads to a lot of sin and that sin can look like a whole bunch of different things. Right. And right. You can kind of use your imagination to see how right. you get there. But it comes from this idea of basically doing what you want in, in the moment. So I'm going to procrastinate on social media. I'm going to procrastinate or distract myself doing, you know, this bad thing or that bad thing or whatever it might be. Um, and that's existing in the chaos. Hmm. order is you know submitting yourself to a no I want to accomplish this goal therefore I have to do this 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 and this hmm. and then I fall in line with that and when you have that order and structure in your life you are less likely to fall victim to a lot of those habitual sins that can exist right. in your life just an interesting yeah it's good it's thought good. yeah no that's, that's I cool. like that um so yeah, I would say then we would agree with John Walton's idea of that, of, of order and chaos. Um, so if it's true, what does it change about the creation story? So if this is true, order, chaos, um, the origin, um, sorry, let me just read it one more time. The ancient world and the Old Testament creation focus, focuses on establishing order and assigning rules and functions. So if that's true, establishing order is the goal of creation. Um, how does that change? How did that change your interpretation of creation? How did it change it for you? So for me, um, it was the quote about the house and the home. Mm. So that the creation story, uh, does anyone have that quote handy? Yeah, I got it right here. Yeah, can you read it, Danny? Uh, the seven day origins account in Genesis is a home story. It is not a house story. It is a different sort of origin story than we expect in our modern world, but it is not difficult to understand why it should be important. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like, it's that for me was one of the biggest things I think I pulled from reading this book. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great um, way to look at it. Yeah. And just to give context, what he means is uh, the Genesis account, the seven day origins account is not a house story in that it's not about this is how the framing was built, the electrical, the plumbing, and blah, blah, blah. It wasn't all the technical details, but it's actually a home story. It's yeah. about here is how I brought function and order within the house to create a home. Right. And uh, to your point before this session, it's far more intimate. Right. And that's when he said that it really clicked for me I was like you're right like when he when he talked about a house when I talk about a house I'm, I'm thinking real estate when I hear about a home yeah I'm thinking about the family I'm thinking about the atmosphere yeah the vibe yeah and uh, there there's intimacy love acceptance there 
Yeah. And so I think that's how it would change it for me because I've always viewed this seven day account as being one of a material origin story, a house mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. But now I'm actually looking at it differently. I'm thinking it's challenging me to look at it in terms of family, of God's like, I love, I love you so much. I love humanity so much. This is how I brought about a good thing. And it's not about the technical. This is how I created your skin and, and blood. Right, and right. It, 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 we're not flesh and bones. That's it. You know, yeah. there's there's a soul. And what's neat about that too is like, that is the answer that people want to have. Correct. Yeah. You know, it's 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 not. I mean, I don't want to put words in just people's mouths, but I would say on generally people while they are interested in like you know how their dna functions and all that it's more about why it functions how did it get here yeah and you know what mm-hmm. is the nature of my what is the nature of my being yeah you and, know and less about mm-hmm. how, how did how was i like what less about the nuts and bolts of what put mm-hmm. me together mm-hmm. yeah and it's like a, it's like that longing like i've heard this said before where like um what people are looking the most for is um, to belong like right. they're they're yeah. looking to be totally. known, totally. and I think um, when we focus on the idea that like God establishes order, and uh, what, what we're really saying is that God is creating space so that we can be known by Him and actually have purpose in life and um, establishing order with Him and being in relationship with Him. That's what the story is about. So right. I think I think Genesis does a good job of placing us in that story and not just telling us this happened to these people. Yeah, awesome. Any other closing points on Proposition 2? That's good. No, I think that's, yeah, awesome. that's... That was a great discussion. So for the last 10, 15 minutes of this podcast, we're going to discuss Proposition 3, and that is Genesis 1 is an account of functional origins, not material origins. So this is kind of ties very closely to what we were just discussing. Um, this is, now we're honing in on more on, this will be more of the discussion around um, what common interpretations might be for material origins and can you still draw those conclusions from the Genesis text so that would be like old earth versus young earth um, or is this more about do we agree in that it's about the functional origin it's about how we function inside of creation in this ordered chaos environment um, so yeah, do you guys agree with this statement? Do you think that Genesis is more about the functional or more about the material? I I, I would agree with John. Um, it's the first time I have really been exposed to it, but it made a lot of sense to me. I think it answered a lot of questions that I had. And just as we were talking about the last proposition, um, it's, it's a home story, it's not a house story. And... Uh, yeah, he, he even he talks about how in creating the cosmos in this way, it's actually not to serve himself, but to serve humans. And this is contrasting the ancient world, the rest of the gods in the ancient world, in which um, those gods would set up the cosmos to function for themselves, and humans were just an afterthought. And so when you, when you think about it in that lens of what we just talked about, okay, God is a God of love. He created humanity to have relationship with them. He loves them. He loves us. And then when I look at it like that, I think, yeah, this isn't so much about here's the nuts and bolts. So when I look at um, the material origins, I, I'm not actually thinking about it as much anymore. And so I have been of the opinion that the earth is young. That's kind of what I had, a, a literal um, theology, but I've definitely changed. And uh, I think that it can't be taken so literal. And I think John makes that point quite clear. Like there's a lot going on behind the scenes. So I was just mentioning to you guys earlier, um, I was reading from John Piper and wanted to know kind of what he, where he lands on this. Uh, along with a lot of other theologians, uh, they, they believe that Genesis verses 1 and 2 um, are actually talking about the creation of material origins. And then all the days thereafter, the six days, 
um, is rather the ordering, managing, and structuring of things. And then this actually allows for 24-hour days, but also allows for an old earth. So that's kind of where, where I've come to stand on terms of the material origin account. I think that this is about um, functional origins. This is about ordering. However, when we do take a look, okay, now let's address material. I think that it, we do have an old earth. I think it is very old, but the Genesis account of the different days, I do think that was in 24 hour periods. It was just in structuring, it was in bringing about uh, function and order. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Danny? Um, yeah, a lot of, I think there's a lot of good stuff said there. I think, I, I agree with John. Like, this is a story about functional origins, not material origins. Again, I would just clarify that, well, he's talking about Genesis 1 specifically. So, yes, I would say that's completely functional. I'm not sure if I could say there, um, there are material aspects. Maybe there is, like, with, you know, the creation of um, humanity, although it doesn't say how. It just says, like, God created humanity in his image. Um, here's what I do think, though. I think... I don't think you have, to, and just to push back against you, Andrew, I don't think the days have to be 24-hour periods. And this is not even a pressure where, like, the days are, like, millions of years. Rather, what I think about the days personally is um, with Israel, with the people of God in um, the Old Testament, um, every, like, again, if we're going with the idea that Moses wrote the Torah, the, five, the first five books of the Jewish and Christian Bible, Right, if we go with that idea and the fact that he was, um, he was trying to help Israel understand this is the God that you serve, um, this is how things are, and like ba based on that, like you actually see how um, in the law that God gave Moses that um, the Israelites were commanded to rest on the seventh day, because in six days God created the world. And I think, I think what the the six days are doing personally is not so much saying like. Yeah, um, these are 24-hour periods. What I think is happening is that Moses is using this framework to, to help people understand that, again, that their, their very lives um, function within, within this idea that um, because God is someone who is creating order out of disorder, um, we too reflect that. Um, we work six days a week, and then on the seventh day we rest. Because, again, there's an aspect of glorying God, enjoying His creation. I think... I think Percy Genesis 1 is, yes, functional origins, but I think it's more of a framework for Israel than it is more explaining, like, yeah, um, there's a separation of material origins and then God creates, um, or rather he orders all the things that he's created in six days. I'm not sure if I necessarily hold to that, but I'm not sure you have to hold to anything necessarily to affirm that it is functional to begin with. So Yeah, for, for me, uh, definitely... I don't think you can deny that the text is talking about functional totally. origin. Yeah, I think we're all um, in agreement with that. Yeah. yeah, but for me, I don't think that it that means that it has nothing to do with the actual material origin. Yeah, totally. So, so I think that right. they they right. can, in some instances, can mean a bit of both, where mm. it's like, functionally, that is the focus of Genesis, and that's something that's a new concept for me that I have after reading this book. But I still would align probably more with that ma traditional material interpretation of Genesis. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's something that will change over time. And I would say I'm more open to it changing over time than I ever have been. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's just like, just because the text is like the Starry, Starry Night example, back to the, the painting of the Starry Night, there are still things in that that resemble a picture yeah. of a starry, like a literal picture of a yeah. starry night. You're saying and it while, resembles the reality. Right. Yeah. It, re it resembles the reality sure. that, it, yeah. that is. So the, so the functional, well, yes, it, it still resembles the reality. So um, I get a little peeved when it's like people really like, you know, read into the texts things and, and draw conclusions that just fit with our current societal interpretation of what we should be believing. Um, 
it bothers me when that's the view that we go to. It's like, what is the motivation if you were just to consider the Bible, mm -hmm. you know, and the world around you as you see it, not as how people are telling you to see it, how would you interpret the creation account? And I think if we're honest, most of us would interpret it more literally than we would like, no, like it has to be old. It can't be 24 hour days because the earth is millions of years old. Well, like, why is the earth millions of years old? Well, because science has proven it. Well, can science actually prove that? You know, why are we believing that? Well, if we, the reason we believe the earth is millions of years old is because, or why we want to, is because we want to move away from this idea of there being a deity, of there being a God that we're accountable to, that there's creation. The only way that you can account for um, how we got to where we got from like a single cell organism, which is the evolution, evolutionary opinion, is through time. That's why it exists. So that's why I just, I don't like to read into too much time into the text in order to fit our current scientific mm -hmm. interpretation because our current scientific interpretation isn't even based on a biblical foundation or framework. So I guess that's kind of where I've, mm -hmm. I've landed. I would say I'm still more young earth. I don't care if the earth is 6,000 years, 10,000 years, 100,000 years, a million years. That would still be considered young earth uh, by like, I would say the masses. Mm -hmm. um, I just think, yeah, like we can absolutely take a functional interpretation of of the text of Genesis and not lose and not have to like. Yeah, you don't have to. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. What are you? What are your thoughts on that? I just, I, I just think if this, if, if science, again, I don't know enough in terms right. of scientifically, but. Um, I just keep hearing time and time again how the earth is extremely old. And um, I, I'm always like, okay, so you're saying with a young earth um, theology, you would still say that the earth could be millions of years old with that? I would say it's, it's the wrong question. Like, I think, I think you're trying to answer a question that you can't ever really have an accurate answer to because you weren't there. But if science says that they, they have some concrete proof that it's that old right like i mean there's so many there's so many questions you could ask about that first of all how are they reaching that conclusion yeah you know because a lot like, of, of course the dating there's no yeah methods, like maybe it is wrong you know but, how do you how do you pick a rock up out of the ground and say oh this rock was formed fifty thousand years ago you know or yeah. 500 million years but at ago. the same time we don't want to be those christians that are just skeptical of scientific discoveries which is why like i just don't care it's the wrong question in my opinion I personally, how do you how do you reach a scientific person like somebody that's driven by science? Well, if that's we say, where if we say I don't care. That's where I think um, there's this interesting idea of like uh, what we were talking about earlier, where it's like, are we just kind of using this as a cop out? Where it's like, you know what? Yeah. If you've studied science and this is where you align, right? And you're not a Christian, I'm not going to make my debate and argument about the creation origin. I'm going to make it about the person of Jesus Christ because that's really what our witnessing yeah, focus yeah, should be. Abs yeah, absolutely. I just think when yeah, you... Yeah, you won't dive into creation with a, <laughs> right. with a science major. Or anything like that. Yeah, and I've done that. So, like, uh, a guy I went to school with, we were really great friends and uh, we were in school together in the same program for three years. Over the three years, he was an um, evolutionist. I was a creationist. We had creation evolutionary discussions for literally the entire three years. Yeah. Awesome discussions. Yeah great like he brought up good points i brought up good points it both like it was like we both had to like sharpen our views but at the end of the day nothing happened for sure like yeah. there was no conversion in his life there was no conversion in my life there was because it's just intellect exactly so it's like i think i think we're asking the wrong question mm -hmm. when all we're debating is the science it's kind of comes back to what i was saying earlier which is like we have a elevated view of what science is capable of and what science actually is inside of our society mm. it is the ultimate authority and truth in our society is whatever science says yeah and the thing that i always push back on when i'm having a conversation with someone who holds that opinion is like science said the earth was flat science said that the sun revolves around the earth mm -hmm. You know, science has said a lot of things that we have proven not to be true. So be careful what you're saying science says now, because totally. it could change yeah, with more discoveries. Yeah. 
So, like, I don't think you should be basing your entire life, your entire theology, and what you believe about everything in the universe yeah. around something that's not fixed. The Bible is fixed. Good point. Right? Mm-hmm. So I th- that's why it's like, I don't, I don't, I it's used to care a lot. Point. I used to care a lot about, like, the earth being 6,000 years old. I don't anymore. Yeah. It's just the wrong question. Yeah. What are your, what are your thoughts in the last yeah, minutes good, here? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that, uh, ultimately, the whole, when I, when I take a look at this, the Genesis 1, 2, 3, um, primarily just the creation account, it doesn't change my life. It doesn't. It doesn't change the way that I, I live. It might change the way I kind of think, but I think the different old Earth, young Earth, um, with the science, as you said, like, it's intellectual. Yeah, it's good to talk about, and I think it's important. And there's certain people that are just wired that way. They need to know, and like, they need to have the the most scientifically and biblically sound answer in their mind and I think it's good that we all as Christians figure out what we think yeah but it's especially in our society but it doesn't change the way that we do life at least it doesn't for me like I like it just I'm not waking up in the morning being like oh because of this part of the creation story that I'm gonna do such and such no I'm thinking more so okay this is how God why God created me he sent his son for me his son died and rose for me and I have new life in him and like as you said that's what changes lives not yeah. not the creation account yeah so I I, 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 I feel you yeah I, so I think maybe the best way to end this uh, first part part one of our Adam and Eve discussion podcast would be to actually say what is what are the important things to take away from what we've discussed like what are the critical bits that you're saying that can actually be life changing Here's here's what I would say. Maybe this isn't the full like this is what is essential. But I think something to remember is we just finished talking about functional versus material and the beauty of and Andrew was touching on this before. Like um, the beauty of reading Genesis through this lens is that it actually brings us into intimacy with um, what the story is trying to communicate. Right. That um, God didn't just create. Um, the world like solely for his benefit but he actually created to benefit humanity mm-hmm. and in that like you, you see that like God created the potential for relationship with him yeah and not only relationship but actually purpose in enacting um, you know us joining God in bringing order and justice um, to this world and I, I think what that does is it actually brings us back to the heart of Christianity um, it brings us back to this idea that there is this kingdom that as Christians um, we are a part of and we have we have a place in this recreation story where God is making everything new he's bringing people into relationship with him and we get to be a part of that and I think what it does also um, not only that but like you said Ben um, it actually draws us away from those questions about like intellect and it actually draws us to the real question um, it draws us to the question okay what's what's the why behind the what like why is it that we're asking these questions why is it that we do science in the first place why are we curious to learn more about something that might have just happened to be because we're actually looking for a purpose we're actually looking for the things that the creation story is talking about Mm -hmm. so i think i think it it creates a sense of intimacy in the fact that we can find ourselves in the story yeah yeah Mm -hmm. no i think that's a great a great summary Mm -hmm. um any other yeah, final concluding thoughts? I, I would just I just want to um, attach something on to my previous re- remark. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the thing about the creation story that is actually life-changing is in fact the first verse, in the beginning, God. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that is um, what I would say is the most important part. Yeah. You know, no matter what you think about this and the different theologies, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth god existed first he then created mankind and uh through that we had the ability to have a relationship with him Mm -hmm. and so um that just proves to me god is a good god he's all powerful he has a plan a story 
and um, even the way that we take a look at Genesis and how John is telling us to take a look at it imagistically, um, you know, there's a there's a beauty beauty to it in this in this mm-hmm. in this type, this manner in which um, he believes the writer is uh, portraying the creation account with in terms of a, a visual kind of storytelling, um, and that it is a home story, and I, I think that looking at it that way does create a more intimate feeling and that we can be like you know what i do i do matter i do have belonging yeah and um that would that would be my my point no i totally agree awesome uh great discussion guys and we will pick up the next part of this podcast in part two see you then this has been an extend network production